I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians at each of our delegate hubs and throughout the country, where many of our listeners will be based. This is a moment that requires leadership. China's signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so, friends, AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Hello and welcome to this instalment of the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit podcast series for 2022. My name is Alistair Page. In this series, members of the ACSS will host distinguished academics and industry leaders in talks on various national security topics. Our team has selected these podcast topics to provide insight and knowledge relevant to the ACSS 2022, which will occur in December, which is now less than a week away. I have the privilege of talking today with Admiral Chris Barry to discuss the topics of Australia adopting a scheme for national and community service so as to better prepare Australia for crises and foster national resilience. Admiral Barry served 42 years as an officer in the Royal Australian Navy, serving as the Chief of the Defence Force between 1998 and 2002. Admiral Barry is currently an adjunct professor also at the Australian National University, a patron of the Australian Council of Security Professionals and the President of the Australian Crime Prevention Council. He's also been the patron of the ACSS for now the last three years, and it's my pleasure to have him on the podcast today. Thanks very much for joining me, Admiral. Well, it's nice to be here, Alistair, and all ready to go for crisis simulation number three. Fantastic. So we might get stuck in. Over the last three years, the Australian Defence Force has been routinely called upon by government to manage crises resulting from fires, floods, and also the COVID-19 pandemic. What are the risks associated with Australia relying so heavily on its Defence Force for responding to non-military related crises? Well, Alistair, that's a really terrific question, and I think it's very timely, given where we've been over the last three years or so. And uh, I just want to go back uh, and tell a story from my time when I was serving in New Delhi. And it just happened that uh, on one occasion, a battalion of the Indian Army had trashed a town up in the northern part of India. When I went to call on the chief of the Army staff in New Delhi, he said to me, quote, unquote, when a military force gets used to do civilian Um, security tasks, rather than what a defence force is really there to do, it saps morale, particularly when it goes on time after time after time, as indeed it was doing in India in those days. And I use that really to look back over the last three years and say, whilst I understand about the defence force being called out in defence force assistance of the civil community or um, aid to the civil power when it's needed, Uh, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, what would happen if Australia came under some serious attack and the Defence Force was sent off to do its primary task? Uh, And there are two components in the answer to that question. The first one is, to what extent does fighting bushfires, dealing with floods and being there to offer the helping hand to our community, what extent does that undermine our preparedness in a military tasks sent? When I was the CDF and involved in my Navy days, we spent a lot of time honing our skills to be ready for the day they might be needed. And I was always proud to say of our Defence Force back then, in my view, soldier for soldier, sailor for sailor and airman to airman. 
we had the most professionally qualified defence force in the world because we've got a very large country, a very small defence force, and that just means we've got to be the best we can be. So I look at what's happened over the last three years and ask myself, have we impinged on defence force preparedness, uh, the skill sets that might be needed to do whatever is required, particularly at short notice, and secondly, how can we ameliorate that problem? And the final part of that is to understand that at best, uh, a military force of our size can't really put more than several thousand people into the field at any one time. And uh, as I've said on public radio and on television here, you know, when Shane Fitzsimmons was putting out 78,000 volunteers doing bushfires, he was putting out more people that are in our ADF. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, depending on the Defence Force to be there on the day of the race, doesn't sound to me like a really smart answer to the issues we're now confronting due to climate change consequences. Now, you have identified the need for a serious debate on the possibility of Australia developing a national and community service scheme of some sort in order to foster national resilience. In your view, what does a resilient Australia look like and how would a national and community service scheme fit into that? Well, Alistair, that's yet a, another very good question and uh, takes me back to yesterday when I was in the Department of Home Affairs talking about resilience and some of these uh, conversation pieces. Uh, and I guess looking at it from a helicopter view, I would argue that time after time after time, we've seen what I call a lack of preparedness impinge on the ability of communities to respond to natural disasters, whether they're floods, fires, or even the pandemic. Uh, and wouldn't it be really good if instead of having to be victims of natural disasters, we were actually on the front foot and we're actually able to head off the consequences and deal with them before they really impinge badly on our communities. That whole idea of prevention rather than cleaning up the mess later, I think is a really powerful one. So when I imagine what a resilient community might look like, if you think around the globe, where would we find resilient communities? And I could name a couple of places, but a resilient community would have a practiced leadership and be equipped to deal with whatever it might have to confront at short notice. It would have the skill sets available within a community. And, you know, the community might be quite a large region or it might be quite a small region, depending on population densities and the requirements. Uh, what are the risks that that community faces and how would those risks be ameliorated? And when it all goes wrong, how would they deal with what's happened? So, you know, that, that's what a resilient community would look like. And I think there are countries around the globe that do this a lot better than we do. Switzerland comes to mind, for example. Another place I think that um, might be not as obvious is Taiwan. Uh, you know, when COVID broke out three years or so ago, Taiwan was more ready than any other country on the planet for that eventuality. And the economy kept running through the whole of the COVID experience. So these are examples of countries which try to get on the front foot and they practice what they might need to do. They demand service from the community as part of the process. 
What we've built in our country, and I, Greg Mullins, a former fire chief in New South Wales, says this in the last few weeks on the radio better than anybody. You know, the volunteer system that I built, says Greg, is not fit for purpose anymore. And we have to find a new way. And so Greg and I are now together going to talk to ministers about what we might need to think about doing. So having publicly discussed this idea in the past, Admiral, do you think that the Australian community has become more receptive to the idea of a national community and service scheme, especially given the last three years of crises that we've experienced? Yes, look, I think it's hard to conceive the community wouldn't be more ready now than it ever has been, certainly in my lifetime to hear about the idea of the scheme I put forward in 2006. In 2006, uh, in Sydney at the Convention Centre, I launched the idea that we needed some sort of national universal service scheme. And the focus then was on not especially military tasks, but the proposal was born out of my experience is as the number two in Navy, number two in the Defence Force and the Chief of the Defence Force. So I'm talking about 15 years of service at the top of the organisation and understanding that we were never going to get the numbers of people we needed in the Defence Force to do all the jobs we had in our mind. And back then, when I did the analysis on the shortfalls, I think there were years when we were 20% short. And I know that Defence Minister... Richard Miles has been talking about today's situation as though that's extraordinary. And all I can say is actually it's been around for a long, long time. Now, what that says to me is that all the effort we'd put in back then, and we've put the same kind of effort in since then too, all that effort to try and attract people into military service, especially using market forces, doesn't really work. But we've got some extra factors now to consider. First of all, Volunteers Australia will tell you that the volunteers that we rely on for bushfires and floods and things like that, they're drying up. And if you look at the faces of a lot of the volunteers that we've seen on our TVs in the last few years, you know what? They're not young people, they're old people. And old people, people as old as me, they're not the people we need to be doing this kind of work. We need young, energetic really smart people to be out there doing this kind of stuff. And when I look back into history and I studied carefully after 2006, I delivered a paper at the first Festival of Dangerous Ideas called Bring Back Conscription. But actually, I didn't mean conscription. What I talked about was the introduction of a scheme called Aussie, the Australian Universal Service Scheme with matched individual expectations. And that idea was given to me by a breakfast event during the Sydney Olympics talking to the president of the Swiss Federation, who told me that he would not be in Sydney for the closing ceremony of the Olympic Games because he had to go back to Switzerland to do his national service. And I looked at him and I thought, hmm, wow, you're only the head of state and you're going back to do your national service. And, you know, his answer to me was, it makes us Swiss. I go back because I am Swiss and what I do for my national services makes me proud of the country that I live in. And I thought, why couldn't we have a scheme in Australia that made us feel Australian and made us feel proud of our country too? And that's where Aussie came from. 
So Aussie is not like earlier conscription methods in Australia. The history tells us that there were two referendums in the First World War which both did not agree to the idea of conscription, but then we did employ uh, conscriptive and then conscription in the Second World War and going into the Vietnam War. But all of those schemes that we did, they were selective. So you had people who were in the scheme and people who were not in the scheme. If you failed in the Vietnam War lottery, you were selected. If you were lucky in the Vietnam War lottery, you didn't get selected. And that means you could go and live your life as you wanted to. So what Aussie is built around is why don't we have an incentivized scheme? So not a, not a scheme that puts you in jail if you don't do it. Why don't we have an incentivized scheme that will encourage young people really to put up their hands and be involved? And that's the basis of the formula that says in my scheme, well, how about an Australian passport? That would be pretty attractive if you like to travel. My 92% of Australians have passports. Maybe Aussie entitles you to a passport after you get to be 26 years of age. What about a 5% income tax benefit for the rest of life? And oh, by the way, if you're a university student, what about refunding all your hex debt? So my scheme, which would be subject to agreement in the community, my scheme is based around accruing points of service. In my view, a thousand points of service by the age of 26 would be a good start. The dates might be changed or the point numbers might change. And why couldn't people choose what they wanted to do? Military service would, in my view, be the fastest way to get your thousand points. But you could work in aged care. You could work in a Peace Corps setting. There are plenty of other things you could do. Emergency services. There are a whole range of tasks there. So we're only really limited by our imagination. But the fundamental point is that when I generated this, uh, the intergenerational report was telling us that at that time, only 13% of the Australian population would be aged over 65. Nowadays, we know that in 2050, 25% of the Australian population will be over 65. And frankly, we will not have the physical capacity to do all the jobs that we have a need for. And I think that's why a universal service scheme that includes all young men, all young women and all differently abled people would be a terrific initiative for us to have. And as I said in the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, my solution may not be the right one, but at least we need to get a conversation going. We need to have that debate in the community about what would a good scheme look like. And finally, I've done 12 focus groups with young people. And I have to say what surprised me is there is no pushback to the idea of universal service to do the types of tasks that I had in mind. And I was quite impressed. And I have to say, it impressed me that youngsters are getting this in a way that their parents and grandparents don't get. That's really interesting. And lastly, what are the potential costs of Australia not implementing such a scheme or failing to develop broader resilience to crisis in the future? Yeah, look, this is what we were talking about yesterday at that, in that same meeting in the Department of Home Affairs. I mean, if we fail to equip ourselves and get ourselves ready for what I'm going to call climate change-generated consequences, I'm on the record of saying climate change consequences represent an existential threat to humankind on the planet. 
and yesterday and in other forum, we're not talking one and a half degrees Celsius anymore. We're going to have trouble staying at two degrees Celsius and people like me are thinking it'll be over three. But over three, we're in no man's land. We have no idea what is going to happen for extreme weather events, for heat waves, for lack of fresh water and food security, or, you know, the whole way in which we manage our lives or lives of humankind are going to be threatened. So the way I look at it, we have a very, very large country here, Australia, same size roughly as the continental United States. They have 330-odd million people on their CONUS. We have, by best estimates, 37 million in 2050. Now, you don't have to look at those dynamics for very long to realise we've got a problem, Australia, and of those 37 million, 25% will be aged over 65. So what are we going to do about it? Well, we've got to do the best we can. I'm not saying we can find a perfect solution, but a failure to grapple with the issues now and a failure to do something about it, I think will be very costly uh, in a risk perspective to our future. Thanks very much, Admiral. I don't have any any other questions listed. Are there any topics you'd like to explore a bit deeper? Look, the only thing I'd add to uh, this podcast, Alistair, is on the conversation about a universal service scheme. There is a growing number of people who are interested in a scheme. Uh, so Peter Cosgrove has been in touch with me about it. And we know that Professor John Blacksland has been promoting his version of a scheme. And Greg Mullins is thinking about a service scheme as well. So, you know, people who have got some clout in the community are saying, look, Australia, it is time to take this seriously, to have a serious conversation about it and how it might work. That's very important. I don't conceive of a service scheme which wastes people time. I mean, when I was Chief of the Defence Force, I visited countries that had conscription. And, you know, that conscripted forces generally are a waste of time. They're not fit for purpose. They just fill in time getting people to do stupid things. In my version of a universal service scheme, that would not happen. And the second point is the people who are in service should be properly rewarded. It's not labour on the cheap. So I think putting all those elements together, I think harnessing the energy of our young Australians, an impressive group as I've seen year after year and now the third year of the Crisis Simulation Summit, an interest in national security affairs, an interest in the future of our country. Boy, oh boy, let's go for it, guys, because time is short to get things done. That's brilliant. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a fascinating discussion and a really interesting topic and a very pertinent topic as well, given the last three years of crises that we've endured here in Australia. And see you in the summit. Thank you very much, Admiral. Okay, good one. 